Good to see all of you brave souls who came out in the weather. I think, I think maybe it might be a little bit deeper than that. I think that probably everybody got worn out by Black Friday, but hey, that's okay. We're going to be talking about the hopes and fears of all the years. And everybody, I think, has hopes. Everybody also has fears. Um, back in 1868, uh, guy who was a pastor, an Anglican pastor from Philadelphia by the name of Phillips Brooks, Brooks um, met with his music guy, and this was just apparently a few days before they were to do their Christmas thing, and he says, I've written this poem. He says, I want you to put it to music for our Sunday school Christmas program. So uh, anyways, the guy was busy with other things, so he apparently did, waited until Saturday, okay? And so he begins to think about this, and he's trying to work on this, and he can't concentrate, can't seem to pull everything together. So the thing is on Sunday morning, he says that he woke up in the middle of the night. His name was Redner, and he woke up in the middle of the night, and he said it was like there was this angel strain with this song. And he sat up quickly in bed, wrote out the melody on it, and so on. And then he got up early that morning, and he wrote out the rest of the uh, harmony and so on. And uh, the song was one that we're all familiar with. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. The, um, I think that probably there's a deeper story that probably goes with this. In 1865, I don't know if you're familiar with U.S. history or not, but Civil War was going on. I'm telling you, it was a horrible, horrible time. If you can imagine Canada divided into two factions where you're not just you know, angry at each other in Parliament, but you're actually shooting and killing one another. 650,000 people had died. And so he was there in Philadelphia, not that far from Washington, D.C., and of course, Abraham Lincoln had just been assassinated. And to kind of escape, everything was over and so on, and the whole country was settling down, and he decided to go over and visit uh, Jerusalem. And he says that while he was looking out over Jerusalem, he looked over to Bethlehem, which is about seven miles away, and just kind of this calm and this peace that settled over him, and that's when he wrote these words. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I thought about that. What does it mean that the hopes and the fears are met in that little town of Bethlehem in the birth of Jesus? Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're in the middle of some chaos, something's going on, and it's like, it's so distracting because there's just all of this stuff. There's this chaos in your heart, and there's this chaos in the circumstances, and all of a sudden, it's like something clicks on, and it's like this hand touches your shoulder and says, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. And I believe that that's the word that God has for us. We're in a time, and you see the news all the time about how bad it is, and it's getting worse, and there's germs and diseases, and who knows what's going to happen, and then we have our own chaos on top of that. And I really think that if you would just take a moment, you would feel a hand on your shoulder, and you hear Jesus whisper in your ear, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. Now, how many of you have ever wanted something so badly that you just 
you know, could barely stand it. Anybody besides me, you know, we all think about that, right? You know, when you're looking forward to Christmas and so on, you can't wait, you know, for Christmas to come and so on, you're thinking about the things that you've wanted and asked your parents for, which of course they're not going to get you. But like a cell phone or some sort of gaming thing or some new toy and so on. So that's kind of where your hopes are centered. That's, that's where you're, that's what you're dreaming of. And then uh, you get a little bit older and your hopes change and your hopes are, you know, for Mr. Right or Mr. Wrong or whatever to come along. It's usually Mr. Wrong. You know, you just think, you know, it's like, you know, all I want for Christmas is you, baby. You know, how many people have sung that song, you know, and they have some person in their mind. If I only had that person, you know, my Christmas dreams would be true. But over the years, um, these dreams that we have, these hopes that we have for our lives, um, they get a little bit more mature, a little bit more intense. For Lori and me, uh, early on, it was having a baby. We uh, thought, you know, when we started trying to have children, that it would, you know, we're thinking two months, three months, you know, four months at the most, you know. And then it was, you know, 12 months. And then it was a year and a half. And then it was two years. And then it was, you know, three years. And it was three and a half years. And then it was four years. And eventually five years. And I'll tell you, that feeling for us was so close to the surface at that point in life that nothing else mattered. It really didn't. And Christmas, Christmas only seemed to make it worse. I mean, you know, people talking about their, you know, what they were getting for their kids for Christmas, you know, and, and there's stories, you know, and songs and stuff. And I'll tell you, it just rips your heart out because you're thinking, why is it? I mean, we lived back then, we called it the Fertile Crescent because it seemed like everybody had babies, you know, everybody who, some people had them who didn't even want them, you know, and so it's like, how, why is this going on? What, why is this happening? And there are a lot of things in our lives that we feel that we hope for and dream of that seem to be way beyond our strength. Uh, and, and what happens is, is we wait over time. It's like time blows a hole in our hope tank. And what we're hoping for, and when it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, it just seems like our faith kind of drains out onto the floor. And we get to the point where we think, okay, well, whatever. Whatever. There are a lot of things in life that we find are, are way beyond anything that we can do about them. We feel very powerless. And that's how the Christmas story opens. It's this old guy by the name of Zachariah. He's an elderly priest, and he's on duty at the temple in Jerusalem. And it was his one time in probably his entire life to go and to burn incense in the holiest place in all of the world at that particular juncture. And when he was in there, there were people that were gathered outside, and people were praying all kinds of things, praying for kids, praying for, you know, but it was mainly the prayer that the oppression would stop because the Romans had literally crushed the country. And everybody was affected by it every single day of their lives. And so he's in there burning sense, incense and praying and so on. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, people were, were thinking to themselves, we hope things will change. We hope things will change. But I'm afraid they never will. And I think most of us have been there. And the first sign of hope shines up, shows up there in that temple that day. Let me read the, the account for you. When Herod was king of Judah, Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah, and he was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of, Abijah, of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. They were careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. 
but they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, just a little bit of background here. Herod has been the king of Judea for a long time, and, um, you know, sometimes people visit the Holy Land, and they say, you know, I went there to walk where Jesus walked, and ended up seeing what Herod built, because it's all over the place. You know, there's Masada, you know, there's this this, uh, kingdom that he built, this uh, fortress that he built up on top of a plateau. There's Caesarea, this amazing, amazing port city that he built. And of course, one of his crown, uh, one of the crown jewels in all of the things he built was the temple there in Jerusalem. Um, for example, uh, one of the stones in the foundation, and it's still there because they can't move the thing, one of the stones was 44 feet long, and it was 11 feet wide, and it was 10 feet tall. So just to give you some perspective, that's 570 tons of stone. And the people now who are involved in architecture, they can't figure out how in the world he got this thing into place because he had it chipped out and, and shaped someplace outside of Jerusalem and then hauled in. They can't figure out how he did this. It was an amazing, amazing place. But Herod, you see, was also crazy, paranoid. Like he was afraid he was going to lose his kingdom. And so he had a number of wives. He killed two of them. And then he had a number of sons too, and he killed three of his own kids. So compare that to Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were right living. I mean, these people had been following the law, and they can't have one kid. And he has kids, and he's killing them. And you think to yourself, where is the justice in that? Let me read what happens here. This angel has a message. So this is an amazing thing. Imagine being in the dark and and everything in this holy place, and all of a sudden the angel shows up. And he says, don't be afraid, Zachariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you're to name him John, and you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God, and he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Now, let me just kind of set you up on this. What the angel is talking about here are the last words, the last words that are written in the Old Testament, where this prophecy of John the Baptist's coming is actually recorded. So Zechariah would have known this. He had the Bible memorized, so he would have known exactly what this, what this angel is talking about. Now, you think about this, what it would be like for an angel to come and tell you, this is what your kid's going to be like, okay? Going to bring great joy. I mean, kids bring a certain measure of sorrow, but this one's going to bring great joy to you and all your family. And he's going to be great, one of the greatest people who've ever lived. And he will be filled with the Spirit from birth. Imagine that, having a kid who is filled with the Spirit from birth, which means that they don't go off on all the tangents, okay? He will turn many to God. In other words, this kid is going to to make a huge, profound impact on the world. He's going to fulfill the prophecy. That's exactly what he's doing. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. He's going to have amazing influence. It says that people are going to turn from rebellion, that the father's hearts are going to turn back to their children. Now, how many of you would like to have a prophecy like this over your kids? That's pretty cool, isn't it? But listen to what happens. Zachariah is basically thinking, yeah, I just think it's too late. I think it's too late. 
You know, we've hoped and 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 hoped. You know, we've been on the monthly roller coaster now for probably 40 or 50 years and like we can't hope anymore. It hurts too much to hope. And he says, you know, basically he says, so prove it. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to believe you. Now, let's just take a few minutes and kind of draw us into the emotion of, you know, of what's going on here. I mean, all species of life, they go a little bit nuts. You know, deer and, you know, cows and everything else go nuts about, you know, reproducing and so on. But this goes way deeper in the human heart. Because there's this sense of, you know, the miracle of bringing another human being into this world, a human being with a soul who's going to live forever. And we see that, you know, this becomes part of the story of the Bible. You know, the first, you know, couple that actually starts the nation of Israel. Anybody remember Abram and Sarah? Anybody remember them? How long did it take? 25 years. God shows up and he says, I'm going to create nations from you. And so they're saying, so, like, when's this going to happen? It's been five years. It's been 10 years. It's been 20 years, you know? And they take things into their own hands and, of course, creates a mess. Their son, Isaac and Rebecca, you know how long it took them? 20 years to have kids. So Jacob, their son, gets married. And, of course, you know, his father-in-law pulls this deal on him and he pulls him into, you know, marrying his oldest daughter. And then the daughter that he loved, Rachel, you know how long it took her to have kids? 20 years. And you see this with Samuel's mom. You see this with Samson's mom, you know. And I'll tell you, you know, I understand this because I've been there. And some of you have been there too. And it's created all kinds of pain in your life. See, in that culture, having kids was a really big deal. I mean, because, you know, like when it came to succession in your family, like your family name would die out. That was one of the worst things that people thought could happen. Your retirement plan. You don't have kids? Better not retire because nobody's going to take care of you. Your health plan, you get sick and you can't work anymore, you might as well forget that because it's not happening if you don't have any kids, you know? And I'll tell you, people back then, they weren't retiring and moving to Florida. I mean, it was, it was like nobody had these bumper stickers in their car that says, I'm spending my, children, my grandchildren's inheritance. They didn't see that because this was a big deal. There was no one that was going to take care of you when you were old and you couldn't take care of yourself. And you see, with, with the hope of all that happening, this all died. And you can understand why they were so frustrated. And I'm guessing that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've been hoping that things would change for years. For years. The final painful fact about childlessness was that, you know, people actually, like the other women, would make fun of you if you were a woman. You believe that? I mean, how cruel can that get, you know, when some, you're walking down the street and you haven't done anything wrong and say, ah, well, we had kids, you know, you must have done something to offend God because, you know, he gives kids to those, you know, that he, that he loves. And that's why Sarah, would, that's why um, Elizabeth would basically say something to the effect, you know, says, my shame is now taken away from me. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He's taken away my disgrace of having no children. Now, you can understand why 
he would be so deep in, I, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't afford to hope again. I drew this as an amazing picture. You're going to love this. Are you ready for this? This is just such a good picture. Okay. Book of Proverbs makes a comment, and it actually fits really well. It says, when hope is deferred, in other words, when hope keeps getting put off and put off and put off for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, so the heart gets sick. The heart gets sick. And what happens down inside is you just think it, it hurts too much to hope. And so I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop hoping. <laughs> so that's why Zechariah gives this grumpy response, you know. He basically says, and this is found in the message, you know, after this tremendous message about this is what's going to happen. This is what this kid's going to be like, and he's going to change the world. And, and, you know, the prophets have been looking forward to him. He says, do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man, and my wife is an old woman. In other words, you know, you think I'm old and wrinkled, you got to see my wife, you know. You ever seen a raisin, you know? This... Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Gives you a sick sense of humor, too. And some of you know where that's at. You've hoped for something, and you've kept hoping for something, and it hasn't happened. And it could be a child. It could be that somebody that you love and they're on some path of destroying their life and you think, oh, God, please save them. Could be finances and you're hoping for a job and you're thinking, I don't think I can stand the financial strain just one more day. We hope for lots of things. And the worst part of it is getting to the point where it's like your faith tank is just drained out on the floor and you're thinking, you know, I'm not even going to believe anymore. It's too hard. You know, when you're young, you tend to think that the number of redos and do-overs and all this stuff are limitless, don't you? Don't you think that way? Like you're, you know, 19, 20, you know, 25, 30, so, eh, there's another chance, you know. It's all going to be good, you know, and I'm going to go out and, you know, get drunk on the weekend, you know, because it won't really matter all that much. And, and then you just, you know, you, you, keep, you keep doing this and so on. And then you get to the, to the point where you're like 40 years old. And it's like you realize, wow, there's an expiration date on this, you know. This one is um, it's still good, okay? So you won't contaminate you. You put this on your taco. I found out this one. This one hasn't even been opened yet. This thing this expired in 2017. Wouldn't it be bad to find out that your dreams, you know, that all these things that you're hoping will happen, that you've been messing around on the edges, and, and it expired? Because that's, that's what we feel sometimes. I think I have another amazing drawing for this, too. Yeah. Okay. You ready for this? opportunities have a best before date, right? We do. So it's like Gabriel, you know, you can just imagine him. Like he's saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to believe this, you know, prove it, you know, and so on. It's like Gabriel standing there like with his hands on his hips. Says, really? Here, I'm an angel. <laughs> you know, I'm standing right here in the holiest place and I'm giving you the best news ever. Listen to what he says. And the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. Like, I know the one who made everything. I know he made you. I saw him make the world, okay? 
It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at their proper time. You know why he didn't? You know why uh, Zechariah didn't say anything? Because he couldn't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the angel was afraid that you know, he'd go home and wreck you know, Elizabeth's dreams or whatever. But he says, I stand in the presence of God. Why would, why would you not trust what I'm saying to you? Now, <laughs> this whole thing with him not being able to give an answer reminds me of this story about this old Baptist minister, you know. And so he gets up one Sunday morning, you know, and he's got his message prepared and everything. But it's like a beautiful day. He's thinking, I'm not going to speak this morning. I'm going to go play golf. So he calls in sick, which means that somebody else has to scramble and speak for him, you know. So he's out there, you know, and gorgeous day, gets up there, tees off at the first hole, bam, you know, knocks the thing, best, best hit he's ever had, you know, and the thing lands on the green and triples over and rolls in, hole in one. And the angels are watching this, you know, because they're knowing God's not real amused by what he's doing. And, and so gets up to the second hole, you know, bam, one of the best hits he's ever had, and thing goes out, lands on the green, rolls into the hole. And they're thinking, what is going on? Third hole, Bam, same thing, goes in, the, goes in the hole, hole in one, you know. And the angels, you know, begin to talk to God and say, well, so what's going on here? Like we were expecting maybe you'd send a thunderstorm or strike him dead with lightning or something like that, you know. And, and God said to him, he says, just think, who's he going to tell? <laughs> you can get that a little bit later on as you go on, okay. <laughs> so the pain of their waiting gets solved. And God gives them a child. And it's an amazing thing. And God is up to something brilliant. I mean, they're all, they're all parts of it, you know. And the interesting thing, when you begin to look at the story, you read, we're, read on, and we're going to be talking about this next week, but um, Mary comes and visits, you know, and Elizabeth says, wow, how, why is it that the mother of my Lord should come and see me? And the baby jumps inside her. Don't know what that was like. But, you know, it all happened. And, and you think about the irony of this. For Elizabeth, she's thinking to herself, it's too late. And for Mary, she's thinking, it's too soon. I'm not married yet, which creates problems for both of them. And then if you think you have it bad with relatives, okay, all the relatives get together to name this baby. Now, for me, you know, if they'd like pulled on the, the name list from our family, my name could have been Clyde, uh, it could have been Clifton, it could have been something like that, or Fred, you know. So they're, they're trying to figure out what the name ought to be. And then it's when, it's when Zachariah basically says, no, no, no. He says, the angel told me, he didn't say this, but he wrote it down on a piece of paper. He said, his name is John. Bam, all of a sudden he could talk again. Now, here's what I want to think about in closing. How did Jesus, showing up 2,000 years ago, meet our hopes and our dreams? Now, here's what I know. According to everything that Jesus taught, God is at work in all the things in our lives. He's at work everywhere. You get back to our story. So, you know, we waited five years, and what we now know, see, we can see, couldn't see it then, but we can now see it in perspective, that if we hadn't been where we were at that particular juncture, we would have never adopted Kelly. And I'll tell you what, 
She's an incredible blessing to our lives. But we didn't see that. We had no idea. What you find out is that God is also not limited by age. You know, Noah, you know, he's 500 years old when God comes and calls him and asks him to build a ship. And he spends 100 years doing it. And then, you know, Abraham, you know, at the age of 80, he leads his troops and sets Lot free. And then he has a baby at 100 years old. And he apparently has more kids after that, if you read on in the story. Still going. Moses flunked out of the leadership school in Egypt, you know, at the age of 40. And he's thinking it's all over. And then he gets a second career taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And he thinks, okay, well, I'm ready to retire now. And then all, God comes and taps him on the shoulder again at the age of 80. And he spends the last 40 years of his life forming a nation. That's what we know him for. I get a little nervous about the age thing myself. And what you find out about is that God is still working. God is still working, no matter how old you happen to be. Maybe the bigger piece of this, though, is about the waiting part. Waiting part. We sing a song at Christmas. It's called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Are you ever going to come? Don't you see the pain we're in? We've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Are you ever going to show up? Are you going to do anything about this? Are you going to just watch people suffer? Are you doing anything at all? Are you at work? Just waiting. Waiting room, whether it's on you know, the DVP or wherever it happens to be. Nobody likes waiting. How many of you are familiar with this sign? Like you're watching something on Netflix and you decide to go back and watch another part of it, you know, so you click the thing back, you know, and it's like 4%, and the thing keeps going around and around and around, you know, and you think, is this thing ever going to cough up the movie, you know? And that's, and that's what we're like. And here's the question. Is God ever doing anything while we're waiting? Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say, I wish I had more patience? How many of you would say, you know, just kind of just be honest this morning. In times you ever run out of patience, I wish I had more patience. You know how God builds patience in our lives? It's by waiting. He's always at work. He's always at work. And it doesn't feel good. Nobody likes to wait. Maybe you want to pray, you know. It's like, come on, God, do something here, you know. Like right now. But he doesn't always do that. And sometimes it's because he sees, he sees something else. You know, there's this passage in the Bible, and it says, but when the right time came, in other words, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So I'm thinking, okay, I was looked up in the Greek. So it's probably kairos, you know, it means in, in like the big broad scheme of timing and God and everything, you know. And you know what it is? It's chronos, which means at the right time, like, you know, like 4 BC or whenever it happened, you know, in this right time, at this time, it was at night. It was, you know, it wasn't in December 20, but at the right time. At just the right time. At just the right time. I thought about that in terms of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and I thought, you know, let's do the math on this. So let's say that I'm guessing they're probably 65 years old when this happened, or maybe older. So let's say that they were born 65 BC, okay? 
So for them, you know, I mean, you know, the, no, knowing the timing of this, girls usually were married by the time they were 13 back then. So 14, so right time for having kids would have been 50 BC, right? For John to be born. So Mary was born in likely 15 BC because she was probably about 14 years old when the whole Christmas story takes, takes place. Jesus' ministry took place in 27 to 30 AD when he died on the cross at the, at, on AD 30. So John the Baptist, if the timing had been when they thought it ought to be, John the Baptist would have like maybe been dead. 77, because the average lifespan back then was 48. And you begin to see, okay, God was at work in this whole thing. God was at work in all the timing. Just the right time. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. Because you've got something going on in your life, I'll bet, where the right time seems like. Like now. Like yesterday. Like it needs to happen now. Because it might be too late if it doesn't happen now. And you just need to understand that God is the king of all time. Maybe the second way that Jesus represents the meeting of all the hopes and dreams is what he revealed about his father. That God is not up there like, you know, reading a book in the back room while all this stuff goes on. Like he's not out there, you know, adjusting the twinkle on the North Star or doing something like that. That he is aware. That's what Jesus said. He's your heavenly father which means that he loves you. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. Even your own dad doesn't know that. He cares about everything in your life. And the sparrow that hits your window, he knows when a sparrow falls. He understands all of this. And he's at work in your life. He's a heavenly father. And the question that we all have to deal with is, will you trust him? See, that's, that's the bottom line for us. Even in all the chaos and in the mess. There's other things, too, about this that, you know, are amazing. I mean, when you look at the lineage that Jesus came from, you know, you think, well, he would have come from the perfect line. Have you ever read the lineage? It's found in the first chapter of Matthew chapter 1. Like, there was a bunch of dirty jeans in that laundry basket. You know, Judah, we sing, you know, he's the lion of Judah. You ever read about Judah? You ever read about Judah? Good. Because <laughs> Judah was a scoundrel. He was the one that sold, you know, Joseph into slavery. And then, you know, he's out on a, he's out on a sheep shearing thing one time, and he gets a little bit interested, you know, in this woman who's a prostitute, so he goes to, goes to bed with her. It turns out to be his daughter-in-law, and he has twins by her. One of them is Perez, which would be Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, okay? Well, it doesn't end there. Then there's Rahab. Remember, it tells us that they pulled a temple prostitute out of Jericho? Well, she marries one of Jesus' descendants, one of his, one of his ancestors, and so on. So she's part of the mix. And then, there's Mary, and then there's, you know, Ruth, great story in the book of Ruth, but she's a Moabite. And the, it says specifically in the Bible that no Moabite is ever supposed to enter the temple. So her great-great-grandson, David, is the one who basically plans the temple, and then his son, Solomon, builds the temple. You know the story of Solomon? It's this messy story of where David screwed up really bad and he went to bed with somebody he shouldn't have and that's who, that's who Solomon's mom was. This is a messy, messy story. God works in the middle of our mess. God works in the middle of all the stuff. We think he can't possibly use this, but he does. 
Now, here's where I want to go with this. When we forget how to hope, God does it for us. And I want to read this passage. It's found in chapter 8 of Romans. And he says here, he says, you know the times when you don't know what to pray for because you're in so much pain? And your lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. And all you're doing is you're groaning down inside, and you're saying, this feels so unfair. This feels so horrible. How could you work in this mess? And it says the Spirit of God understands the pain that we're in, and he prays for us. And this is what I believe. When we forget how to hope, when we forget how to hope, God hopes for us. Listen to how, what he goes on to say. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. How many things? How many things? Like just maybe a few things out of a whole list. Like what? Everything. Everything. To work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And what, when you read on, what you find out is you find out that God has a blueprint and we think it's all a bunch of mistakes. We think, you know, we prayed and he didn't show up and we asked for help and he didn't give us any help. We, that's how we assume, that's how we assume things are going on. But God has a blueprint and he's working in all the details of our lives for our good. And then it goes on to say, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? And since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? That's the hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I know two things this morning. And the first one is that God didn't just do one, have one special plan for you know, the coming of his son and the rest of us get leftovers. That God didn't just do cool things, you know, 2,000 years ago, and then it kind of all faded out, and he doesn't work anymore, and, and we're just kind of left our own in a messy world. That's not, that's not true. God is at work through our lives because he loves his son and because his spirit lives in us, and he's drawing all things together in this world. But sometimes we don't see it. It's been about 13 years ago in about two weeks that my Dad uh, died. He fell in the hospital and had a head injury. Some of you know the story. And, and then he got, had to get life flighted down to Pittsburgh, and they did surgery, and he almost died. I think they spent about 15 minutes trying to revive him the next day. And when he came back, of course, he had a brain injury. He was out of, came out of a coma. He thought my, thought my mom was his mom, and, and it was just very confusing. He wasn't able to do the woodworking anymore that he'd always loved to do. And then on top of that, it was just a few months after that that my mom got the word that she had cancer, and then my lung cancer, and then my, um, my brother-in-law found out that he'd gotten fired from his church, and, and my sister, who's 42, found out she's pregnant, and it was just like this chaotic mess. And I remember going down there, driving down to Pittsburgh, and I visited my mom and was told, she'd been told that she had about a year to live. And then I went up to see my dad and I just walked in the door and it was dark in his room and I could see him over just sitting in his wheelchair kind of looking out the window that day and I just stood there for a moment and I was really thinking about the impact that he'd had on my life as we talked though it turned out that he was thinking about something very very different 
He said to me, he said, you know, Ken, he said, I, I feel like I've wasted my life. He said, I feel like I've had way less impact than I hoped and dreamed that I'd be able to have. And I sat on the bed and I talked to him through my tears and I said, you changed my life. Your faithfulness over the years, do you realize the impact that that's had on me? I mean, anything that Lori and I are able to do in ministry, you, it, it, it goes back ultimately to the influence that you've had on us, or at least part of it does. And, and then my brother and my sister and just all the families and all the people he served and the people you know, whose beds he stood beside and prayed for and people he walked with and it's their children and their grandchildren. The, how do you even calculate that? And yet, from just what he saw, he's thinking, I've had such little influence. And I'm telling you, God is way greater than that. What he wants to do and what he is doing in your life is way more profound than you'd ever dream. Anybody know what the one thing was that Zachariah had to do? Anybody know? Can guess what it was? Like after his encounter with the angel, anybody know? He had to go home and sleep with his wife. There's only one virgin birth. And here's the question I want to ask you. What is the one thing that you need to do? What is the one thing that you need to do? What is the thing that God is calling you to do? And it, and it may be just like just one thing, one thing, one thing. See, God doesn't need much. Anybody know what this is? Just take a shot. It's dirt. Okay. Thousands of years ago, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, God took a handful of dirt and he breathed on it and it became a human race. If that's all he needs to do to create a human race, just imagine what he can do through your life. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Let's pray.